Hey, Pathway family, welcome here again as we're continuing on in our study on the book of Joshua. Uh, we're going to be looking at Joshua 22 today. It is a really interesting story of what happens when something takes place that is different than what it actually looks like, which is why we're calling this one, It's Not What It Looks Like. So Joshua chapter 22, going to be focusing in on verses 10 through 34. And if you don't know where the book of Joshua is, we encourage you to turn to the beginning of your Bible where you will have a table of contents. And just go ahead and use it. Don't be ashamed. People worked hard to put it there, and it's a good thing. So Joshua chapter 22, I'm going to be reading verses 10 to 14, and here's what they say. Now, this, of course, is talking about Israel, and it says, When they came to Gililoth, near the Jordan, the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built an altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent ten of the chief men, one from each tribe of Israel, each at the head of the family division among the Canaan Israelite clans. Now, this all might sound incredibly strange to you, but don't worry. We're going to explain it. We'll gain a deeper understanding. And I promise you, uh, you're going to get challenged. At least I know I was when I was doing the study. So let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word and for our opportunity to learn things from the people that you've interacted with in your word. And so Jesus, as we are looking at the Israelites today, and as we are looking at this particular uh, conflict, Lord, uh, this encounter that they're having, I pray, Jesus, that we will have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you. In your name I pray. Amen. So, question for you. Have you ever had a time uh, where you jumped to a conclusion that just wasn't right? You just jump to conclusion, and, and you don't actually even really need to answer that question because I really already know the answer. We've all done it. All of us have jumped to conclusions. Our first impressions, we could say, are often right. We hear that a lot, except that they're also sometimes totally wrong. I remember being in a job interview. I was, I think, 19, maybe 20 years old, and I hadn't been under, I, I hadn't been diagnosed with any allergies at that point yet, and so my eyes were constantly bloodshot. So right there in the middle of the job interview, I was asked if I was on drugs because my eyes were completely bloodshot. Did they jump to a conclusion? Absolutely. Of course I wasn't on drugs. I'd never used drugs before. But I looked like I did, which right made me certainly go and try and figure out why my eyes were always so bloodshot. First impressions are often right, except sometimes they are totally wrong. And at times we think we know what's going on only to discover later on that we weren't even in the ballpark of what was taking place. Um, and so I want to introduce this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning by giving you a bit of a history about what happened earlier. Because what we're finding in this passage is that people have drawn a conclusion. And ultimately we find that this conclusion was actually in fact wrong. But here's what's happened up to now. Uh, the Jews had conquered the land on the east side of the Jordan River, and Moses was going to abandon that land because the promised land was on the other side of the river. Uh, but the leaders of Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh 
asked if they could stay in the land because they had already conquered it and because it was just what they needed for their flocks. There was The water was there. The, the grazing land was there. It was fantastic for what they wanted it for. So Moses agrees on one condition. All right. So he's basically saying, listen, you can have this land, but it's on one condition. And that condition is that you had to go with the rest of Israel when you cross the river in order to help conquer the land of Canaan. And that was it. You can have this land if you cross with everybody else and conquer the land of Canaan. And so after that task was complete, they would be allowed to return to their own homes once more. Uh, and that's where we kind of are today. The battle for Canaan had been going on for five years. Now, sometimes we just read this story as if things happened one after the other and there was no marching and, and you know, daily life going on. This was a five-year process to take the land of Canaan. And even at this point, it wasn't 100% conquered, but it was certainly mostly conquered. So the land was basically conquered to the point that the soldiers from two and a half, these two and a half tribes had been given permission to return to their homes and their families. And so they're going home. Um, but somehow they begin to feel isolated, you could say, from the nation of Israel. And so that's probably what prompted them to do what at first glance didn't seem to make much sense at all. So when we read in our text this morning, I want you to see uh, that they didn't actually make much of a really good first impression in terms of what it looked like they were doing. Uh, so let's take a look at that. And I just finished reading, actually, verses 10 to 14. And so what we find in here is that there's a misconception. We have these two and a half tribes, they're coming home, and when they get there, they build an altar. And when they build this altar, the rest of the tribes of Israel go nuts. They meet at Shiloh because they're planning to go to war with them. Now, you might be wondering, what is happening here? Like, why is this such a hostile response? Like, what was, what was going on? Well, the tribes on the western side of the Jordan, uh, they didn't see this coming, but there it was. Two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan did it. They built a tribe, this massive altar. Now, you might wonder, okay, again, why was this such a big deal? This takes us back to Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, it says, If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you, have led the people of their town astray, okay, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire and probe and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proven that this detestable thing had been done among you, you must certainly put the sword to all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain in ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. So there is this command from God in Deuteronomy 13 when it comes to taking the land of Canaan and it being given to them as inheritance. And so when this altar is here, one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that the altar represents something to Israel. It is one altar and it spoke of one faith and it spoke of one people. And so the idea of building another altar, the penalty for building this other altar was that everyone in the city which built the altar was to be put to death. This was serious business. 
not a light thing. So when you read the story and you sit there and you're wondering, well, why are they all gathering at Shiloh to go to war against them? It's because of Deuteronomy 13. It looked like they built an altar to a god. Because why would you have a different altar than the one at Shiloh? There's one altar. There's one faith. There is one God. We are one people. Why are we having another altar? And the only reason they could think of at the time was that you build another altar because you're worshiping another God. And that enacts Deuteronomy 13. So when the Western tribes heard another altar had been built, they immediately thought that the Eastern tribes had abandoned God. And so the other thing to bear in mind is this. It's not just that Deuteronomy 13 was enacted. It's also, they're only five years away or removed from when Achan and his family were stoned to death because they disobeyed the, God, disobeyed the Lord and brought Israel into sin. And so you got to remember how people died when Achan took those few items and buried them in his tent. They're not that far removed from it. And so they hadn't forgotten this lesson. And so they must not disobey the clear commands of God because the consequences would be terrible. So what are they supposed to do? So in verse 12, we're told that the Western tribes decided they were going to go to war against the Eastern tribes and overthrow their disobedience. So the fact that they were so stirred up by what they believed was spiritual betrayal shows that they were deeply committed to God. They had a real desire to maintain the purity of God's worship. And so here's what becomes really important. It is right to want to stand against sin. Always. It is right to want to stand against sin. And that's what we find them doing. We have the, um, we have the other tribes of Israel, the majority of Israel, looking at these two and a half tribes saying, sorry guys, this isn't how it's done. We got to go to war against you. We got to make this right. We got to burn your cities to the ground as an offering to the Lord because this is what he tells us to do. So it's right to want to stand up against sin because that sin is the idea of separating ourselves from God. And as we looked at last week, we're supposed to be a lot like Caleb and we're supposed to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. We're supposed to be closing that gap between us and the Lord. And this is the desire of Israel. And so that means they stand rightly against sin. But as proper as it is to stand against sin, it's also wrong to jump to conclusions about people that were presumably off the mark. Look, it, it appeared that their brothers were doing wrong and, and they would discover that there was another side to the story. And so when they heard about the altar being built, they had immediately assumed that it had been set up in opposition to the altar that was in Shiloh, the real altar of the Lord. Now, I want us to understand something because this is critical. In that passage in Deuteronomy 13, it says to investigate things thoroughly. It's exactly what it says. As a matter of fact, when you go back and you read it, it goes on further and it says, look, you must inquire, probe, investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing had been done among you, then you must certainly put to sword. So listen, this putting to sword thing, that is not our first response. This, this antagonistic, violent approach to these things is not the first response. The first response is supposed to investigate it thoroughly, probe and, and inquire. What we find in this particular part of the story is that that's not in fact actually what they did. They made an assumption. So it is as much as it is good and right to stand up against sin, 
it is wrong to jump to conclusions. This is what we're learning from Deuteronomy 13. And so that's something we all have to guard ourselves against, the danger of judging people by outward appearance. It looks this way. You know, it's, you, you've heard it this way before. Uh, I've heard often people say things like, well, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it must be a duck. Sure, except when it's not. <laughs> you know, jumping to conclusions is not a good thing. So the danger of judging people from outward appearance, the danger of attributing bad motives to people's actions when the same actions could, in fact, be explained by pure motives and inhonorable things. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe you, need, you meet a, a fellow believer, and I've actually heard of these kinds of things happening before for people, but maybe you, you, you see a person that you're in some kind of relationship with, or maybe you're developing a friendship with, and, and they're walking down the street, and, and maybe they're across the road, and they're walking on the other side of the street, and, and you just you start waving at them. And they appear to look in your direction, and they don't wave back. They seem to just stare right through you. It, it, it's easy if that happens to immediately jump to conclusion that they're upset with you, when in reality, it might be that your best friend is just upset from another personal matter. It might be that the sun's in their eyes and they just couldn't legitimately actually see you. Maybe they're thinking about something else in that moment. And so far from being a deliberate snub, or an intense, that intense look could have, in fact, actually just been outer evidence of inward turmoil. You see, if we jump to conclusions, we would never have investigated it. We would never have probed into that to figure out what was really taking place. We've made assumptions. It is always wrong to make assumptions, but it is always right to investigate and to evaluate to draw a conclusion. So it's so easy to do what these Western tribes did and just jump into wrong conclusions and pass rash judgments on people. The Pharisees in the New Testament were often guilty of that. Like Consider what Jesus says about them uh, in this, this exact topic, actually, in John 7, 24. He says, Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Now, the idea of judging in the Bible is this notion of uh, uh, taking a look at the information, the evidence, and draw a conclusion. It is not the same as being judgmental. That's something different. Um, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And you can sort of gain the idea that what Jesus is saying here is like, look, check this thing out. Explore this. Investigate this. Have a conversation with somebody before drawing a conclusion about this. And all of us have had some occasions in our lives when people had judged, if people had judged us on the way things appeared, well, we would have been in an awful lot of trouble because things aren't always the way they seem. So we have this conflict that is immediately taking place. And in this conflict, we see that the nine and a half tribes um, the, pri the priests and 10 out of the leaders come forward and they begin to talk to the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half-tribe of Manasseh. And so you can see, maybe if we're going to give it a title, we're going to call this the confrontation, right? Uh, so this is verses 15 to 20. Here's what it says. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, now, this is an amazing statement, the whole assembly of the Lord says, it's talking about the whole nation of Israel. And this is what they say. They say, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? 
It was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though the plague fell from the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will will be angry with the whole community of Israel. So again, this is taking back to their concern about what took place, uh, even in Achan's day where the entire nation of Israel was held accountable for it. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share this land with us, but do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not the wrath of the whole did not the wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. And so you see here that there's a great concern for uh, both the tribes that appear to do evil, but also the great concern of how their evil would impact the nation of Israel. So there's this confrontation. And Phineas starts off in full steam. And so instead of listening to the two and a half tribes, uh, he began pointing the finger at them and pointing out their faults. So instead of going to them and saying, hey, so uh, see you got a bit of a construction project going on here. And so, but that, this is not what he does. He comes at them and he says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you betraying the Lord? Why are you abandoning God? Why are you putting all of us at risk? And so the fact that the priest Phineas was included in this delegation illustrates that this wasn't just some political matter. This wasn't just a division of land and power within the tribes. This was primarily a spiritual issue. And so Phineas had served as their spokesperson. He said, how could you turn your backs on God and break faith with him and all the other tribes? You built this altar in rebellion to God. You know how God punished us uh, when we chose to sin and the land that you have chosen is unfit for worship. You can move over to the other side of the river with us. Just don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourself. And so on the surface of the story, there seems to be one group which is very right and another group which is very wrong, seemingly. But you got to be careful um, that we don't become so convinced that we're right, that everyone else is wrong, that we start focusing on how wrong everyone else is. Like, I want you to notice something else. It's just not just that we shouldn't focus on how wrong we believe somebody else is. But the delegation here, it doesn't only accuse and condemn. They also actually make a pretty generous offer. Like the eastern tribes don't think that they can worship the Lord on the east side of the river. Sorry, if the eastern tribes don't think that they can worship the Lord on the east side of the river, the Jordan River, then they can come over and live on the western side of the Jordan. And really what they're saying there is, listen, for the sake of you and us and for us being Uh, faithful to God, we would shrink our territory and allow you to come live here with us. We would reduce our inheritance so that we can remain pure, so that we don't come under the Lord's judgment. And so in other words, as harsh as the confrontation seemed to be, there was this desire, a desire, strong desire for restoration. And so this is what's going on. There's these accusations that said, listen, you did this and you did this, and this is what you're trying to accomplish. 
And if, and if you would just get yourself right, we would even sacrifice on your behalf in order to be able to have you with us so that nothing bad happens. I mean, the, the idea here is that, I mean, these two and a half tribes didn't even get a chance to say anything. So now they do. In, jo- in Joshua 22, verse 21 or 29, you have this dialogue, and it says, And then Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. So it's kind of like, you're coming at us pretty hard, but, but here's what we're going to say. Look, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, repeating themselves. He knows. And it's another way of effectually saying, listen, you've got this wrong. Put your swords down. You catch that? You've got this wrong. Put your swords down. And let Israel know if this has been if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. Listen, if what we did was so wrong, if what we did was in fact actually the wrong thing to do, then don't spare us. So this is an admission saying that listen, we are willing to be held accountable for whatever it is that we're doing. And then it goes on, and it says, If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. So what they're saying is, and you need to understand this, what they're saying is, listen, if what we did was wrong, which is opposed, if if what we did was opposed to Deuteronomy 13, then let the Lord hold us to account, meaning kill us and burn down our cities, never to be rebuilt again. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the Lord God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. This is amazing. That's why we said, let us get ready and build up an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. So there's no plan to use this for burnt offerings and sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said... If they ever say this to us, our descendants, we will answer. Look at the replica of the Lord's altar with our, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against God and turn away from Him today by building an altar of burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of our Lord our God, sorry, the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. And so to their credit, they responded, God Almighty knows what our motives are. He alone is to be praised. If we have done anything of what you have said, then we deserve God's punishment and more. But we didn't build this altar to sacrifice here or to worship other gods. We built this to be a witness. And so these two and a half tribes began to acknowledge the very important fact concerning the accusations that were against them. And God knew the truth. So they built this altar as a replica of the altar that was before the tabernacle in Shiloh. 
as a witness to their commitment to keep worshiping at the tabernacle with all of Israel as a testimony of their continuing right to share in the Lord's worship and His blessings to, despite that there was a river that separated them. And so this altar stood for the covenant of unity, not division, for a firm devotion to God, not backsliding. They basically invited God to call them to account and encouraged Israel to put them to death if the charges leveled against them were accurate. And it's interesting to me because what we learn in this story is that we, we should really be willing to listen before we rush into judgment. This is the heart of communication. If you find yourself saying, I don't have to explain myself, there's a good chance that you're walking outside of the will of God in your life and you're choosing to destroy the relationship. I don't have to explain myself. It's this idea that I live so independently that I have no accountability to somebody else in my life. And so what we find then is just this amazing picture of resolution in verses 30 to 34. Verse 30 to 34 say this, When Phinehas the priests and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Remember, they believed that they were going to be under the judgment of God because of this activity. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead, and reported to the Israelites, they were glad to hear the report and praised God. I mean, think about that. When is the last time we praise God for somebody else being faithful to God? And that it stirred our hearts in that way. And it says further, And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, as a wilderness, sorry, as a witness between us. That's the name that this altar was given. As a witness between us, a witness between us. That the Lord is God. Nine and a half tribes went from being critical of the altar to understanding because they were willing to listen and acknowledge that their fellow Israelites had thought of something that they just hadn't considered. Sometimes we're inclined to fight battles that don't need to be fought. And this incident with the two and a half tribes can teach us an incredibly important lesson, maybe a series of lessons. Like Sometimes we're inclined to fight battles that just don't need to be fought. And so we just see two different ways of getting to the same place often. And so how about this? Don't take it personally that your plan may not be the one that people have chosen. If the end goal is the same, then don't be offended that your plan may not be the one chosen. How about this? If the goal is the same, the end product is the same, so then flow with the plan of others. Even if you believe you've had a better plan. It's called teamwork. So because human nature is what it is, there will be times of misunderstanding that's going to occur, even amongst believers. And the spirit and the example from these chapters speak of a proper way to reserve, sorry, resolve those clashes. We've got to be governed by our love of the Lord and love for each other. And we've got to be careful that we don't just quickly jump into conclusions about each other and 
not giving each other the benefit of the doubt. How about we start by giving each other the benefit of the doubt, that we would choose trust. And I'll tell you this, a few honest, rational words can prevent a civil war. Think about your family. Think about your friendships. Think about your church. A few honest, rational words can prevent a civil war. And so let me offer balance again in this. I'm not suggesting that we gloss over things that really matter, because that's equally wrong. But I got this suggestion for you. James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So the passage tells us that we need to be quick to listen. And, and I want to suggest to you that we listen in order to understand. If you can at all possible, listen to somebody from that perspective of trying to understand what it is that they're saying, what they're feeling, rather than trying to rebut whatever it is that they're going to say. Listen. Be quick to listen for the purpose of understanding. Be slow to speak. Uh, and when you do speak, speak from the perspective of trying to offer clarity, not just be heard. Being heard often causes us to move in a direction where we can sometimes, not always, but sometimes be pretty forceful with our words, very abrupt and very offensive. But if you were to communicate in a way that was intended to bring clarity, man, that just goes way further. So listen, be quick to listen so that you have understanding, be slow to speak so that you're, you're going to bring clarity and process what it is that you're saying. And then it also says, be slow to become angry which is really the idea, we gotta control our emotions. And why? Because when we control our emotions, we're better able to stay unified with each other. It is so easy nowadays for people to get offended because someone else has a dissenting opinion. Look, you can have a different opinion. That's perfectly fine. Unity is not uniformity, which means that we're able to be in a relationship with each other, disagree with each other, and hopefully help each other grow. But that only happens when we're quick to listen, so we seek understanding. When we are slow to speak so that we bring clarity to our words, and when we control our emotions so that we stay unified. This is my challenge to you. So consider the relationships in your life and purpose this week to be a person who's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this example of people rush, rushing into judgment, Lord, and then getting clarity and bringing reconciliation. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be a people who will not rush to judgment, that we will explore and investigate things fully before uh, bringing judgment on anybody for something. Jesus, that we would go to people and we would be very quick to listen to what they have to say, that we would be very slow in our speech so that we can have clarity in what we are saying. And Jesus, that we would keep our emotions in check, that we would be slow to get angry, uh, Lord, because we want unity and, and hostile emotions and emotions that are all over the place, Lord. It's hard for us to maintain unity there. And so, Lord God, would you help us as we practice these things in all the relationships that we have in front of us? In your name I pray. Amen.